We are here this morning to worship God. I'm going to ask as we begin this morning that you take just a moment with me. Close your eyes, please. Take just a moment to picture in your own mind who God is in all of his power, all of his majesty, all of his holiness, and all of his righteousness. Please carry that thought with you into the lesson this morning. It was approximately 3,500 years ago when Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. This is recorded in Exodus chapter five and verse one. It was at that point that probably the greatest, certainly one of the greatest and most powerful leaders in the known world at that time, echoing the sentiments of many, a powerful leader in the 35 centuries since, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, cried out, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Exodus 5, verse 2. There are several critical things that we need to understand from that statement in Exodus 5, 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't know the Lord. First off, Egypt was a polytheistic nation. That is that they believed in many, 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 many and varied gods. They had gods for everything. Even though man-made gods, that is those, those man-made images, they don't really exist. Man-made gods that exist only in men's mind and not in reality are usually nothing more than human beings or beasts with exaggerated physical attributes. That's all they are. You see these, these so-called gods, right? And all they are is these men or women with exaggerated physical features. Or even if they're an idol or an animal like Baal, it's, you know, the bull or, or whatever it is. And it's just exaggerated physical beings. Sort of like comic book creations, if you will. But Egypt worship these. And the fact is that even these man-made gods or images, these figments of men's imagination, quite often these gods, so-called, were only the gods of one or two or three things, or maybe four things. They weren't, they weren't God overall. They weren't God in charge of everything. They each had their own little, little pocket that they supposedly ruled over. But this God, this God that we are here to worship this morning, this God is infinitely far more, as he would go on to prove to the Egyptians 
by triumphing over their gods with the ten plagues. Number two, the second thing we would notice from that statement in Exodus 5 and verse 2 that Pharaoh made is something we often miss, and that is God's incredible love, even for that pagan king who did not know him. We see this in the ten plagues again because God gives Pharaoh many chances, doesn't he, in the beginning to realize who he is? And, and Pharaoh says, yeah, I'll let him go. And, and God relents, and then Pharaoh doesn't. But God doesn't just nuke him on the spot the first time he doesn't do it. God gives him another chance, and God gives him another chance. And we get through this in the first half of the Ten Commandments. God's patience, even with this pagan king and his love, is seen. The third thing, and most importantly, perhaps, that we see in that statement is the fact that just because one neither knows, acknowledges, or submits to the Lord God of heaven in their life does not mean that he is any less real, powerful, or that they will not have to answer to him for their decision to deny, reject, and not know him. Pharaoh could deny him all he want. I do not know him. Who is he that I should obey him? Well, you know what? You can deny him all you want, but you're going to have to deal with him. So the question comes back again. Who is the Lord? Who is God? Pharaoh soon came to find out, didn't he? And to let God's people go as well. And, and as I think about Pharaoh and and his attitude, I'm reminded of the words of, of Agur in Proverbs 30. Please turn to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30. The, the beginning of this reminds me a little of Pharaoh. Proverbs chapter 30. Agur, in verses 1 through 9. Actually, start here in, in what's labeled as verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. It's pretty much what Pharaoh said. Moving on, he says in verse 4, Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? If you know, every word of God is pure. This is the explanation. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Aren't you glad of that this morning? Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, which Pharaoh certainly was and did, and say, who is the Lord, which Pharaoh certainly did, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Who is God? Who is this God that Pharaoh said he did not know, that is, until God brought him to his knees? 
who is this God who is capable of such great love for his created beings that before he ever created them from the dust of the ground, before he ever created the dust of the ground, he had a plan in place to send forth his son to empty himself of much of who he was, to pour himself into human flesh, to leave the glories of heaven behind, to be made like his creation in all things, and then come and suffer and die at the very hands of the ones he created, just to give them eternal life with him. Who is this incredible God? Who is this God that we gather together to worship and pray to and sing praises to, do, to each first day of the week? Who is this God whom the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17 made the world and everything in it him who is the Lord of heaven and earth and who is not far from each one of us in verses 24 through 27. Who is God? That is a question that Isaiah seeks to give us an answer to. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah seeks to help us to understand who is God. And while you're turning there, just let me say there are no earthly words that are capable of describing the absolute full fullness of the God of heaven and earth. But Isaiah paints us a little bit of a picture. And what I want you to understand as we go through this lesson this morning, this God that we're reading about is the God who desperately desires to be with us. So much so that he gave his son so that he could be with us because we're not fit to be in his presence. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah trying to help us understand who God is, tells us beginning at verse 10, behold, behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Watch this. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. That's who God is. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know, as we consider all of the oceans and all of the waters of, of earth. Picture all of those in the great deeps of the Pacific. Picture all of those in, in, in all of the oceans of the world. And Isaiah says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand like a teaspoon of water in the hollow of your hand? That's what Isaiah is talking about. Measured heaven with a span. He actually knows the parameters of the limitless heavens. And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. You ever tried to weigh dust? God knows its weight. That's who he is. 
He has weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. One of the things that J.R. got for Christmas was a fish scale. It only weighs fish up to 110 pounds and he'd like to break it. <laughs> you fishermen understand that, right? How much do the mountains weigh? Can't put a mountain, God's put all of the mountains in scale. That's his power. That's a definition, a description, an illustration of his power. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or, or as his counselor has taught him? Obviously nobody. With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Isaiah is trying to let us know the, the infinite power and wisdom and knowledge of God. Behold, verse 15, the nations. That's all the nations, all the nations that have ever been. All of the nations and world superpowers today that, that fight and struggle for dominion. All of them, all of them together are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on, not just dust, but small nations, small dust on the scales. This is the power of God. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. God causes islands to rise up like it's nothing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing and are counted by him less than nothing and worth whole nations. The things that people fight over in our world, to God, they're, they're so small, so tiny. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? We move down to verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Haven't you understood from the foundations of the earth? Don't you know who God is, Isaiah is asking? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its, grass, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. You ever been camping? You ever had one of those little pup tents, one of those little things, you know, the little springy things, you put them up, you do a little, you know, right? It's pretty easy if you've done it once or twice, little, little single man tent, right? I mean, pretty quick. God spreads out the heavens like that, like a tent for him to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely they are planted. Scarcely they will be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. And he will, like those little white dandelion things, blow on them. And they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. And so the question comes down, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. See, see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. The stars come out at night because God's in control of that. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. It is only because of God's might. This is who God is. You get the picture yet? After Isaiah writes this, he goes on in another chapter, chapter 64, to beg this almighty God to make himself known to all people. Isaiah chapter 64, he asked God to make himself known. Oh, verse one, that you would rend the heavens, rip them in two that is, that you would come down. And Isaiah's crying out, God, I just want you to, to show people who you are. 
that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. God, come down and show them. Show us. Verse 3, when you did awesome things for which he did not look, you came down. The mountain shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you. I love this next line, who acts for the one who waits for him. Listen, everything he said about God and God's power and God's love and God's mercy, that's not all God is. This is the God who acts for the one who waits on him. This is the God who responds to those people who trust him. Isn't that awesome? That's who God is. That's who he is. And of course, we know from the New Testament, the beauty of the fulfillment of this text, we know from the New Testament, God did come down, didn't he? God came down and made himself known, did he not? Yes, he did. He came down in person, in the flesh, and made himself known, or at least made himself available to be known for those who would seek to know him in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and John chapter 14, 6 through 11. So again, I ask you this morning, who is God? Who is this God that would love his creation so much that he would do that for them? Who is this God who despite all they have done to him, all of the rejections like Pharaoh, all of the rejections when he came, he came in the flesh and his own did not receive him, despite all of those rejections, this God, how, who is he, who is he? who still personally desires to meet us here, you and me, in person, spiritually, each and every Sunday. God wants to be with us as we gather around this table. Think about that. I want to try to answer the question or some of the question today of who is God with a couple of sermons, both this morning and, and tonight's, with a sermon series entitled The God Of. That's it, simply The God Of. And it is taken from a, a number of verses that include the phrase The God Of as we try to figure out who this God is. You might want to take notes because, let's face it, there's just way too much of God to stuff into two sermons talking about the God of. So let us begin. According to the faithful Abraham, who's God? He is the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. Genesis 24 and verse 3. Verse 3. We do not have a separate God of heaven and a separate God of earth. He is the God of heaven and earth and all of the universe which he created. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who appeared to Isaac, Genesis 26 and verse 24, who appeared to Gideon, Judges 6, 16 through 23. And he spoke through his emissaries, to such as the Israelites, 2 Chronicles 2017, Joshua, 
In Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 8, and Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, 20, saying to all of them, saying to all of them, do not fear, for I am with you, or do not fear, for I will be with you. Well, I'll tell you what, with a God with that kind of power who tells me do not fear, I, guess what? I really don't have to be afraid of too much, right? And he says, for I will be with you. Listen, what a beautiful thing for these men of old to know that God was with them, right? When he said, don't fear, I'll be with you. Samson, Joshua, I'll be with you. But as I think about that, I think about, especially this time of year, why did God pour himself into human flesh and come to this earth? Was it not so that he could be Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew chapter 1, wasn't it? You see, we've got to understand that as much as he was with them, he is with his people now, and he meets with us in a special very spiritually intimate type of way when we, when we celebrate his great love for us as we gather around that table. He is the God who is with us. This is the God of heaven who told his disciples on more than one occasion, do not fear. When he was about to face his own death, he said, do not fear. Then he showed them why, because he came back from his own death and he said, you don't even have to fear this. According to the mighty man of God, Moses, in Deuteronomy, he is called the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He is the rock. His way is perfect, for all of his ways are justice. He is a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun. Listen to this line. Who rides the heavens to help you. And in his excellency, he rides on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. That is a collection from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, chapter 32, verse 4, and chapter 33, verses 26 through 29. This is the God who desperately wants, desperately wants to love and to meet with and to fellowship with us as we gather around his table. That's who we're talking about. Who is he? He is the God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 3. According to David, the, the mighty man after God's own heart, he is the Lord God of hosts. That means that all the heavenly hosts are beneath his command and authority. He is the Lord God of hosts, 2 Samuel 5 and verse 10. He is the God of my strength in whom I will trust, 
my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, and my savior. According to David, 2 Samuel 22 and verse 3. Listen to this list. Scripture says, using that phrase, the God of, he is the God of our salvation. Psalm 18:46 and 22:5. Listen. There is no salvation anywhere else except in Christ. That's it. There is no pursuit on this planet. There is nobody smart enough. There's nobody good enough. There's nobody whatever enough to provide you with salvation. All of the self-help books in the world won't do it. There's only one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He's it. He is the God of our salvation. The God of our salvation, whom we're going to spend eternity with, is the God that meets us as we gather about his table on Sunday mornings. That is incredible. He is the God of our salvation who delivered us. You know why? So that we would give thanks to his name and triumph in his praise. First Chronicles 16.35. He is the Lord God of Israel. And there is no God in heaven or on earth like him who keeps his covenant and his mercy with his servants who walk before him with all of their hearts. 2 Chronicles 6.14 and Nehemiah 1 and verse 5. He's the God of heaven. I don't know that much about heaven. Jesus didn't tell us that much about heaven. I, and I think one of the reasons why is because we can't get our, our limited human earthly minds around the glories of heaven. So he didn't tell us a whole lot about it. But I do know this, that, that for all of its majesty and all of its glory and all of its purity and all of its perfection, that God is over it all. He is the God of heaven. He is the ruler, the Lord of heaven. Ezra chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 in Nehemiah 2.20. Listen to this. He is the God of our righteousness who relieves our distress, has mercy on us, and hears our prayers. Psalm 4, verse 1. God didn't have, listen, listen. You and I do not merit the holy and righteous God of heaven hearing our prayers. We're sinners. God can't stand sin. Turned his back on his own son. We know that on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God does not have to, to he, he doesn't make himself more powerful to hear us because he's got all power anyway. And, and because of who we are, he doesn't have to hear us. You know, sometimes you get a call on your phone, right? And you look at the caller ID and you say, ah, I need to talk to that person, right? Job, family, whatever, right? Well, God doesn't have a phone. He knows who's calling. <laughs> but he doesn't have to listen to us because we ourselves merit it with our sins and our unrighteousness. But, but, but God has mercy on us and hears our prayers, Psalm 4 and verse 1, because he is the God of our righteousness. It is him who gives us our righteousness, who gives us through Christ that, that forgiveness of sins that allows us to be important to him, that allows us in his presence to contact him through prayer. The scripture says he is the God of mercy, the God of truth, and the God of our strength, our lives, and our salvation. Several Psalms, Psalm 31, 5, 42, 8, 
6819. And again, you know, it's pretty impressive sometimes <clears throat> when you watch a nation's glory and splendor, as it were, in their, in their armed forces. If you ever want to see something that will leave a mark on you, go to a, uh, go to a Marine Corps or, or some other base and watch graduation. The precision and the, the splendor and the, the glory and, and all of that but listen, the host of heaven is far more impressive, I'm sure, than any host here on earth. And he is the God of hosts whose faithfulness surrounds him and who saves us and causes his face to shine amongst us. Psalm 89, 8 and Psalm 80, verses 7 through 19. Who's God? Who is this God? The only God. Who is he? This living and almighty God and creator whom we come together to, to celebrate and to meet in worship and to sing to. Isaiah, again, continues to try to tell us who he is. Look in Isaiah 30. Back up to Isaiah 30. Look at this. Who is he? Here's who he is. Isaiah chapter 30, look at verses 15 through 18. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not, and you said, no, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee, and we shall ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. Now, now before I go any further, you say, what's that got to do with this? Well, listen, I'll tell you. God has said to these people, listen, if you wait for me, I'll bless you. Paraphrase, okay? But they said, no, we're not going to. We're going we're to put our trust in men. And God says, okay, verse 16, okay, well, you're going to incur all kinds of problems for yourself, if that's the case. But then look, look, look at the beauty of the next verse. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Do you get verse 18? Do you get what God said? God told them early, once again, trust me, do it my way. They said, no, we're not going to do it your way. We're going to go charging off and do it our way. And God says, well, okay, well, you're going to be defeated. You know? But you know what? You know what? I'm going to wait for you to make your mistakes. I'm going to wait for you to come back to me, and then I'm going to bless you, because that's who I am. Isn't God awesome? Isn't God awesome? Why? would you wait? God, why would you wait? The Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. All God wants to do is be gracious to us, that he may be exalted, that he may have mercy on us. And, and so he'll wait for us. And we need to therefore trust and wait upon him. Look what Isaiah goes on to tell the Old Testament people in Isaiah 54, 4 through 8. We went to 64, now go to 54. Yes, I realize I'm not doing this in numerical order. 
That's okay. It's still Isaiah 54, 4 through 8. Look at it. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth. You will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Isn't God awesome? That's who he is. He is the God of truth. Isaiah 65 in verse 16. So it only goes to reason that his church would be the pillar and support of the truth, holding it up for all to see. Jeremiah would tell us that God is the God of all flesh. And he reassures us in Jeremiah 32 and verse 27, there is nothing impossible for God. There never has been anything impossible for God. There not, is not anything impossible for God. And there will never be anything impossible for God. It is that God who gave his son for you and me so we could come here this morning and be in his presence to say thank you. That's who God is. Who is God? Daniel repeatedly referred to him as the God of heaven. In fact, four times in chapter two of Daniel, before a previously hostile, agitated, murderous, and pagan king, Daniel, chapter 2, calls him the God of heaven. Wow, Daniel, this king wants to kill you. He wants to kill all the wise men of Babylon because they can't tell him this dream. And yet, in, in your account in Daniel, chapter 2, you're still calling God the God of heaven? Daniel, I can almost see him going, uh-huh. <laughs> That's who he is. And I don't have to fear this king. See, we know the story there in Daniel chapter 2. The king has this dream, and, and he doesn't want just an interpretation because he realizes that those wise men around his court are, are playing politics, as it were. So he said, here's the deal, boys. And you can read this in Daniel chapter 2. It's a lot more, it's biblical. This is a paraphrase. He said, listen, I want you to not only tell me the interpretation of the dream, but I want you to tell me what I was dreaming. And they say, we can't do that. There's nobody on earth can do that. And he says, fine, I'm going to kill you all. So has his... Guards go out and start killing the wise men. They come to Daniel, and Daniel says, whoa. He said, I can tell him. Now, I love Daniel here because God hasn't told Daniel at this point what the dream was about, but Daniel's confidence in God is complete because he knows who God is. He's not telling. And so God reveals it to Daniel, and, and Daniel goes in before the king, and, and he tells the king, and, and I want you to look with me in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, 
I want you to look at what happened. And I know these are familiar stories, but, but for the sake of our, our theme this morning, please, please take a look at this. Just, just a few verses. Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 47. As soon as, as Daniel tells the king about this, the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of, there's our phrase again, the God of gods. There's nobody like him. He is the Lord of kings. He is a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of, of Babylon. And we know that Daniel then had his three friends instituted there as well as leaders. See, Daniel knew who God was. Not only did Daniel know it, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew it too. And, and we know the story there. They're, they're told they've got to bow down before this, this big image. And if not, they'll be thrown into fiery furnace. And they say, we don't really care because our God, what? Is able to deliver us. And even if he does not, O king, we're not going to bow down. How do you do that? Easy. Not easy to do it. Easy to know how to do it. Sometimes doing things and knowing how is too different, right? They knew God. They knew God. And look what happened in Daniel chapter 3, verses 28 and 9. They're thrown into the fire. They come out. They don't even smell like fire. Their clothes aren't singed. The king has seen a fourth man, quote, like a son of the gods walking with him. But look in verses 28 and 9. Nebuchadnezzar then speaks, saying, Blessed be the God of. There's our phrase. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. That's the key. They trusted him because they knew who God was. Do we know this God that's in our presence this morning? And they have frustrated the king's words and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut in pieces. Their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. That's who God is. We know the story as well of, of Daniel in the lion's den. We know the king goes away for the night and he comes back and he says, Daniel, has your God whom you serve day and night been able to save you? Daniel said, yes. Who's God? He is the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He is the God of heaven. He is the God. Don't, 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 don't lose sight of this. He is the God who poured himself into a human body, gave up the glories of heaven, and came to this earth so that lost, weak, ungodly, unholy sinners like you and I could be forgiven and saved and spend eternity in heaven with him. That's who God This is the God who meets us at this table. Micah said in Micah 7, 7, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Habakkuk in the closing part of the Old Testament in chapter 3, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, said, Though the fig tree may not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy, listen to it, here it comes, in the God of my salvation. My God, this God, the holy God that we have talked about, who is the God of heaven and earth, who came to this earth to die for us, that God, even when things are going as bad as they can go, we can rejoice in the God. God of our salvation. And that's what we're here to do this morning is to rejoice in Him. In a moment, four or five moments, we're going to sing a song. And we're going to sing a song to tie together this entire lesson. We're going to sing a song together to acknowledge to the God who's right here with us because he said he'd be here where two or three are gathered, right? In my name, I, I won't eat this again till I eat it in my kingdom, my church, right? God, God meets us here. We sing a song. He meets us in sweet communion. We're going to sing a song to acknowledge to God in heaven, the God who is here and to one another. What an incredible God this is. And then we're going to meet him at his table in his house. We're going to accept his invitation to join him around his table. One final text before we do both of those things. Please turn to me to Luke 22. Verse 14. God in the flesh. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent, desire, I have, with fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Keep in mind, this is the God who made heaven and earth. This is God in the flesh. And he said, I have long, oh, how, how I have, I just desired to eat this with you before I suffer. Before he suffered to pay for their sins and mine as well and yours too. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, gave thanks and said, take this. Divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, remember, this is God. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You. You, not the person beside you, behind you, you. The God who created the heavens and the earth said, I'm going to bleed out for you because I love you that much and I want you with me forever. It is that love that the God of heaven and earth came to give you that we're going to celebrate right now after this song.
As we have discussed this morning, God of heaven and earth, Lord God of hosts, the God of our salvation, the God who is everything and created everything and gives us all good gifts, has infinite power. The only thing that matches the infiniteness of his power is his love for us. But despite everything he's done, coming in the form of human flesh, dying for our sins, being resurrected, raised, beating death, arising on the third day, leaving us his word, going back to heaven to intercede for us, despite all of those incredible things that God has done, there's one thing God will not do. There's a couple of things that God can't do. We know that God can't lie, but there's something else that God won't do, not because he doesn't have the power to do it, but because he has limited himself and will not allow himself to do it. And that's take away your free will to accept what he has done for you. After all he has done in the giving of his son and in all of his power and all that he has done, God asks but one thing. That you love him in return, that you trust him, that you follow him home to heaven. That begins when we come to believe in what the Bible says about him. We believe in him as the son of God and we're willing to Repent, to turn back to God, to confess Him, to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, and then to live faithfully from that point on. If you have not done that, why not? God has done everything else to save you that He can possibly do. Everything. The one thing He can't do is decide for you to become His. If you'd be baptized this morning or if you've already become his and you haven't been living quite for him the way you know you should, loving him, trusting him, following him, we will pray for you. If you're somebody here this morning, first time you've heard some of this stuff, you want a Bible study, whatever we can do for you, we want to help right now, but we can't read your mind. So please come to the front and make your needs known how we can help you to grow closer to this incredible God who has been here this morning with us as we stand and sing.